Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. A reminder that everyone spoken of in this podcast must be presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. On the last episode of Guilt. Graham said he came off the track to the right, he looked down and then when he turned back he saw the jacket. I think that this is, I think that this is the spot right here. I mean... My first thought is, how could this be missed? I just find that hard to believe. And eventually I thought, oh, well, I'll try through his wife. So I messaged her. And she messaged me back only about five minutes ago. And said, basically, sorry, I don't know who you are. But my husband, Donald, He's dead. And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive and I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. just managed to get hold of uh, I had messaged this person that apparently was potentially the only other witness that saw Heidi and her barn with with um, the killer or the alleged killer and I sent him a message on Facebook I'd found him on there and sent that and hadn't seen it and I thought oh yeah it's probably gone to the others folder you know how that happens and so I thought I'll try through his wife and so I messaged her and she messaged me back only about 10 minutes ago and said basically hey sorry I don't know who you are but my husband 
died. Mate, how are you? Oh, fuck, I've been better. I just got some bad news. Spud's dead. Yeah. He only died in March. I got hold of um I messaged to I messaged him on Facebook and he didn't reply and I was like, "Oh, you know, sometimes that happens when the message goes to, you know, your other's folder or whatever if you're not friends." And so I um yeah, I was like, "Oh, I'll message his wife and just ask her to tell him to check his messages." And I said, "Hey, just can you get Don to check his message?" And yeah, she messaged back and said, "Oh, hey, I'm really sorry, but he died in March of multiple drug toxicity or some shit like this yeah yeah I said you saw it yeah I know I know yeah oh well I guess um yeah I just thought I'd give you a call and let you know and but um yeah it's obviously going to it's going to change things, but yeah, we'll... Yeah, okay, boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two steps forward, one backwards, eh? Got to keep going forward, eh? Yeah, yeah. No, we'll, we'll get there. Get there, Darren. No worries, Ryan. Cool. All right, well, um, I'll, I'll give you a yell maybe um tomorrow to be like six o'clock tomorrow or something. And... Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome, Ryan. Cool, mate. Okay, have a good night. Okay, mate. Okay. Okay, thank you. See ya. Bye. Yeah, so... I don't know what got from that conversation, but um, yeah. So the guy that I want to speak to, that who was going to be the other witness, is dead. The most important witness in this case. Oh man, it just makes my stomach feel sick. You know, it's it's could be possible that the truth, you know, the only person that may actually speak. You know, the truth may have died with him. You know, it's not the end of the road because there's, you know, there's hopefully he might have told some people, but I mean, it's just hearsay if it's coming from someone else. But I don't know, just going to hope for more details and, um, oh, it's just gutting. It's so gutting. Yeah, like um, Darren said, you know, two steps forward, one step back. It's not over. It's just a bump in the road. It's not the end of the road. But the reality of finding the truth has just taken a major hit. Tragically, Donald passed away only in March of 2023, four months before my message. Had he still been alive, the entire trajectory of this case would be different. As one of the brothers and someone who was physically there, his evidence would have been key. When I reached out to his wife, she told me that while her and Donald were together for 30 years, the events I'm speaking of happened before her time. And while she did confirm that Donald had told her he believed his brothers were involved in the Swedes' murders, she said she had nothing more to add and didn't want to speak further. It's no secret that throughout his life, Donald was a drug addict 
and in his younger years. This drove him to a life of crime, to keep up that habit. But I've been told by Darren and others that Donald wasn't really a violent guy. Yes, he was a criminal, but he wouldn't go out of his way to hurt anyone. It seems that in his later years, Donald managed to control his habit through methadone treatment and had been living a quiet life with his family. But ultimately, the years of abuse caught up with him and he passed away during the night. Donald's wife was still deep in grief at his passing, so didn't say much. But she left me with one note. If I was really interested in knowing what happened, I should try Donald's ex-girlfriend from that time. Perhaps she might know something. Okay, so, um, this Christine Hymona. So, I was told by Donald's uh, wife that, you know, if I wanted to really find out anything that Donald might have said or what happened at that time, that, um... I should get in touch with his girlfriend from that time. Uh, her name's Christine Hymona. And of course, using the powerful resource of Facebook, I managed to jump online and I found her and I sent off a message not really knowing what to expect. And and she's got back to me. And um, yeah, so this is pretty crazy so she says here um she was around at that time um and says here you know which locations did he bring up and which years she doesn't know that i didn't actually speak to him myself interestingly she says i have a 1997 statement taken by thames police and notice the detectives added incorrect info And I've been trying to get this to update it. These are just the messages I've got back. She says, this matter has been ongoing for 33 years, since April 1989. She says, I've been harassed, threatened to be killed, stalked, and family was led to offenders and child kidnappers. And, uh, yeah, so I've just messaged her back, and, um, and we're going to meet. We're going to meet, um, you know. Wow. Okay. Like this could be, you know, if Donald's passed away, but maybe Christine was around. Maybe she knows something. She clearly says she knows something. Uh, what this could be, I have no idea. Uh, but one door closes, another one opens. So, um, yeah, I'm going to meet her in a couple of days and, um, See, see where this leads. Exciting. Okay, so the second week of April in 1989, I was residing at Greensboro Street in Hillcrest, Hamilton. Uh, I was there with my parents and my siblings. So on the Friday of that second week, Don Turner arrived at the home. Uh, he was in a small escort type blue vehicle. Donald Turner. Donald. Don Turner, yeah. 
also known as uh, Spud, Spud yeah, the okay. tattooist, um, from Whangamata, because I know there are quite a few Spuds. So Don Turner asked if I'd go to Whangamata with him because he had heard that he was to meet some people at Parakawai, uh, Pat Taikato's farm, uh, at the batch. So I knew where I was going. I had been to the batch briefly once before. I got into the vehicle and uh, we left the town, or we left Hamilton before cars were moving on the, on the uh, streets. So it must have been about sunset or so. Um, and we drove over to Whangamata. The first stop was the batch on Parakawai Valley Road. For both of our safety, I've hired a meeting space in central Hamilton, New Zealand. I meet Christine as she's just finishing her lunch. She's friendly, well-spoken, and confident. Upstairs, we sit down on opposite sides of a long meeting table in a small room overlooking Centre Park. And within the first few minutes, I realise that what Christine is telling me is not just big, it's huge. Christine was Donald Turner's girlfriend during a three-year period around 1989. And that second weekend of April 1989, being the 8th and the 9th, the same weekend Heidi and Urban disappeared, Donald picked her up and they drove to Whangamata, to the batch down the back of the Taikato farm on Parakawai Quarry Road. Sunset or so. Um, and we drove over to Whangamata. The first stop was the batch on Parakawai Valley Road. Um, there was a stream next to the batch. There was a small access where vehicles could pass, but they'd have to drive through the water. Okay, so we stopped there. Both got out the vehicle. Um, there was one person, a Caucasian person, standing waiting for people to come out and eventually they did come out from below the stream by the stream and they walked up towards the white uh, vehicle it was like a, a wagon i asked don who are these people he said well that's dave dave was the stout maori guy and the other person the caucasian guy with the longish blonde hair wasn't known um, Donald said that he had to leave with them and he was leaving me at the batch. Uh, so that the two people that came up from the creek, they hopped in the white wagon, they pulled out and headed towards Whangamata. Uh, and then Donald and the other person hopped in his little vehicle and they followed them up to Pat Taikero's, uh, also Donald Turner Senior's home. Um, and I had to stay at the batch and so they were gone by about 10 maybe I think and they didn't return until night uh, at least Donald didn't return until night but between them leaving and coming back the Māori guy had come along the road in a small dark green old Datsun type vehicle with a young blonde woman in the passenger seat in the front 
uh, I could only see the two individuals in the front of the car. The guy looked like his eyes couldn't get any wider, they were red. And his focus was sternly towards where he was driving. And the woman was not behaving like any other passenger would, just sitting down and, and watching where she, where she was going. She was pushing up against the passenger door and looked like her head could almost touch the roof. She was in her early 20s. Um, she looked like she had hair down to her shoulders. Um, slimmish face. She didn't look like she was that comfortable in there. Anyway, they drove on by. Time rolled on. Um, just before dark, uh, the vehicle came back. It was the dark guy, the Māori guy, no woman. And uh, about an hour later, Donald returned to the batch, and shortly afterwards, Dave Turner pulled in on his green Tirana. And the three of us stayed in the batch that night and woke early in the morning. Um, Donald was heading out to his sisters in Karonga Valley. I went with David in his car and we left. We started heading towards uh, Thames. I think there was a couple of stops along the way. Um, when you and Donald get there and yeah, you see the men coming across, did you recognise today, do you recognise any of those men that you saw, the Māori men? Well, yeah, I've looked at some photographs uh, and I have um, ID'd a Dave Tamahiri. Yep. Uh, the other white man is in a photograph taken outside a, it's like um, a white building which I guess is the Thames police station that's what was on the title of the news clip so the two people who came across the river down or the stream down Parakawai Valley Road can be identified if people will take the time to find that newspaper clipping you know, I know we're going back a long time, but um, any basic features, you know, did he have a beard, no beard? Do you remember the details of the Māori man? He didn't have a beard. Um, his hair was, I suppose, below his ear. Um, he looked pretty rough. He looked pretty rough. He looked pretty uptight. He looked pretty stocky. Uh, he didn't want to make eye contact with me. He had... A very like a broadish nose. Um, photographs don't really show us how dark he actually is in person. So he looked like he was Māori. He didn't look like he was like a half caste or um, Samoan or anything like that. Uh, his eyes are quite wide um, and he's got quite a full, full face. Um, he, he doesn't have any pronounced cheekbones or like a jaw that sits out further or is receding in. 
Um, it's more like a rectangular face, yeah. I suppose. Maybe that's a bit too much. But you're describing that's the man you saw that day. But do you believe that that was David Tomahedi? Yeah, after looking at some photographs and just visualising the picture of a picture of him in the car and his his size, side profile, his nose, I do believe it's one and the same. Yeah. And the uh, the Caucasian guy, um, so to describe his, what can you remember about him? He was probably in his 30s. Um, his, his blonde straight hair went to his shoulders at least. Um, he looked a little bit taller than Dave and he also, um, he didn't look like he was sunburned or anything like that. It looked like um, his skin was quite well looked after, uh, wearing jeans and a top um, and a long sleeve top over that, I guess, because he's got um, layers on. Um, okay. And so they, um, what was his body shape? Was he skinny, wide, tall? He's not skinny. He wasn't like athletic. He was bigger than athletic. Yeah. Um, Height-wise, I don't know because he was on a slope. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So when you get there and they're coming, so there's the river there, but there's a bit of a ford there. So they're coming across there. How are they? Are they like laughing and chatting, or what, what's their sort of demeanour like? They're quite. They're quiet. They're not talking at all. They're solemn. They're shoulder to shoulder, um, and then. Yeah, they didn't say anything from merging out of the stream, up the bank, around to the vehicle. Um, one just looked at Don and that's all that happened and then they drove off in this vehicle. As I've said before, sometimes when one door opens, we find a whole new hallway of doors. Let's quickly unpack what we've heard. According to Christine, on arriving at the batch on the back of the farm, she sees two men, a Māori man who she's identified as David Tamahedi and an unknown European man with blonde hair to his shoulders. She says they walked across the stream, past herself and Donald, and left in a white station wagon, with Donald and another unknown European man leaving in a separate car shortly after. Christine then claims that some hours later, another green car drives past the batch down Parakawai Quarry Road with a Māori man and a blonde woman, who she describes as looking uncomfortable, pressed up against the window and the roof of the car. And when the car returned from Parakawai Quarry Road, the blonde woman was gone. Christine and I go on to speak of a woman here named Angela. This was David Turner's girlfriend at the time, who had a similar appearance to Heidi, being slim and blonde. Do you know the, the Swedes car, what that looks like? A long time ago, when Del Reed interviewed me, he showed me a vehicle. Yeah. And I believe it, it's quite possible it's the same vehicle. Uh, Again, it wasn't, uh, it was quite a clean looking vehicle. Yeah. It wasn't um, like the one I saw the following day, mm. which had a similar shape. Um, 
Yeah. That's the only time I saw both of those vehicles. Um, so let's go to the when you'd been there all day and then it's getting later in the day, what do you say, maybe like four or five o'clock, the green car comes back down. Um, describe the, so the blonde girl that was in there, you said she had sort of like maybe shoulder length hair. Yes. Um, do you, was, you know, Ange also was blonde, was it Ange that you saw in that car? It's definitely not Angela. Um, this woman looked bigger. Yep. Um, she had a longer face. You mean taller, like not big, yeah. Yeah, taller, um, but also Angela's skin colour is different and Angela would wear a lot of makeup, whereas this woman didn't appear to be wearing makeup and her complexion was still quite uh, quite healthy. Um, but it, it's, it's more about how she was sideways almost, looking at the window, the front windscreen, and trying to pull away or get some distance. She looked like she wasn't comfortable and she didn't want to be where she was. By the way, she was pushing herself up against the passenger door and into her seat. Yeah. But I had no vehicle. I had no phone. I didn't know exactly what the situation was. In the years since... I assume you've seen photos of Heidi parking in. I've looked up Heidi online, and I don't know if um, Officer Reed showed me a photograph of them. I'm more inclined to believe that the person in the car with Dave is Heidi. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a one-way uh, road. So if she didn't come out with him, then she's down there somewhere. So the batch, um, yeah, so you know the batch is there and the kind of road sort of swings down from where you were at the batch. So were you standing outside the batch when you saw the car come down? When the car came through, when it was still quite light, yes, yeah. I was outside because I'd been there for quite some hours and I was starting to get a bit aggravated and I was starting to consider my options. Like maybe walk back up to the house or something? Well, yeah. I would have probably hitched into town and gone to stay at one of the martial artists yeah. because I did uh, martial arts over there. Um, How old were you at the time? Give or take? Um, I'm 53 now, so that was 89. So you would have been about 19? Yeah. So just young? Yeah. Yeah. And when you saw the car go past, did you see whether, you know how you can go up towards the forest block or you can go down towards, you know, the road end? Did you, from where you were, could you see Could you see which part of it, that road it went? No, you just saw it go down. I only saw it go down. Um, I would have had to have walked um, maybe 20 minutes. I'm not sure how long it is from the batch to there. I've never walked that road. I've driven down there or been driven down there by Don once and we went to the end of the road and turned around and it's changed now but in the in 89 there used to be a little walkway that people could go across at the end of the road and then up from that was the field where people could drive across and go up the hill. How Whatever. long do you think the car was gone for? Give it like roughly down the road. Well, if he came by me at about five o'clock, he'd come back before it was dark, dark. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, 
an hour to an hour and a half, maybe something like that, roughly. Yes. I suppose, yeah. Because I mean, I'm just thinking April. Yeah, it'd probably be getting dark by six thirty, seven o'clock, maybe, wouldn't it? So yeah, that'd be about an hour and a half. Okay. Um, and you said when you saw the car come past, you saw the blonde girl and who you identify as this. So the same Maori man that you saw crossing the stream was the one driving the car. Yes. And could you, in the back of the car, you couldn't see anyone, or you just couldn't see into the car. I could see that the only two figures were in the front when they were driving to the end of Parakawai Valley Road. And when they come back, well, when one come back, um, there's no real explanation for a person wanting to be down there by themselves. You know, it's not exactly great camping ground. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know where she is. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to be with that guy alone. Mm. Um, I don't know if he went back up to Taikato's. Um, I don't know what happened with the white vehicle, whether the white guy took it. I probably never will. But it's been a long time since uh, the police questioned me and recorded an account of my presence in the location and who we saw um, and unfortunately the account wasn't recorded correctly then and any attempt to correct it has failed. On Wednesday, January 1st, 1997, at 11.45am, Detective Sergeant Dal Reed sat down with Christine Hymona and began to ask her a series of questions about her involvement with Donald Turner and his brothers, and in particular, a batch at the back of a farm in Parakawai near Whangamata. In this statement, Christine describes how she met Donald Turner, their drug use, and then finally a visit to a batch and then the back of the Taikato farm. The names have been redacted, but in her statement, she said, It was afternoon when Donald dropped me off with blank and blank. I think it was a Friday. I only ever visited the batch once. It was on a metal road which went off of the Waihe Fongamata Road, south of Fongamata, just before the bridge on a right-hand sweeping bend. The batch was about one kilometre down the gravel road in a rough paddock, with a clay road going over a creek. The batch was about 20 metres from the gateway and about 7 metres away from the creek. It was a one-room batch, with a set of wooden bunks and a single mattress on the floor. I think there was a wooden chest used as a table and one chair, I think. I slept on the mattress on the floor, and I think Blank slept on the bunks. They were on the bottom, and I think Blank was on the top. During the afternoon when I first got there, I noticed two other men. I believe one was spoken of as a cousin. I think his name was Blank. I don't know his surname. He was blonde, around 5'7", solid build, healthy complexion. His hair was short, and he appeared well-groomed in a casual sort of a way. I noticed him around Fongamata over the following four days with another guy who I did not know. The second guy had darker skin. He might have been similar age to Blank. Late 20s, early 30s, 
dark shorts, wavy hair. He was a bit taller than Blank. Medium build. I can't recall speaking to this other guy who was with Blank, but I was probably introduced to him. I can't recall what this guy's name was. I got the impression that Blank and this other guy may have been doing some work on the property just over the stream, perhaps cutting down trees or widening the stream. As I recall, Blank may have spent some of the time with me on the mattress. I think he was there when I woke up. The next day, I think I went to Auckland with Blank and Blank in a green Holden Tirana car. I think it had a stronger engine than normal. I don't know who owned the car. It was afternoon when we went to Auckland. I think it was to a rock concert at Western Springs. Blank was dropped off with some babysitters in Auckland. That was the only time I ever recall going to the batch where Blank was staying in the paddock. I can't recall where I was around Easter time of 1989. I believe I broke up with Donald for good around October 1989. I can remember this because he dropped me off in Hamilton outside my parents' home and I got mad at him and got arrested for disorderly behaviour. The question you're likely asking right now. If this is a closed case, and as Darren said, police told him, we're not interested, we've got our man. Why is Del Reed interviewing Christine Hymona in January of 1997 about activities on the Taikato farm in April of 1989? Actually, yeah, let's, let's back up. Okay, so yes, tell me about when Del Reed first came in. And so years pass, and then, yeah, so then out of the blue, Del gets in touch with you. So tell me about how that happens. My father had reported me missing. And he believed I was still over in the Coromandel somewhere, so he went to the Thames Police Station. And um, he gave the officers a letter uh, to pass on to me if they found me, and they did find me. And I accepted Dill's uh, uh, offer to bring me the letter. And he arrived at an arranged time at my uh, rental property and gave me the letter and then he led me into another conversation of my activities in Thames and my last period with um, the Whangamata community was in 89 and I was able to recall um, activities that were somewhat unusual for me sort of riveted into my memory because of the bizarre activities of Don and him not having any explanations as to why he used me in God knows what. Yeah, so Del asked a few questions and I said that I'd had a history over there, how I got there, that there was some... Uh, I suppose, rifts in the relationships um, with the people that I had met through um, Don coming in, understanding who my flatmates were at the time. There had been squabbles and so forth. Um, but he also he also um, asked if I was in contact with Spud and I explained, no, I'm not. Uh, and then I moved on to trying to describe the last time that I'd actually been with him and that was when he took me to Barakawai Valley. 
Yeah, so at the time I didn't know the name of the road. I didn't recall it well enough for me to actually say the name of the road, but I described it to him and he said Parakawai and I was like, yeah, that's it. That's it, that's before Whangamatao and the sweeping bend, gravel road, no exit, um, and described like the field and so forth, and a batch. Yeah. Did you get the feeling from Dell? Why did you think he was asking you these questions about Parakawai and, and stuff? He explained that uh, there had been a person recovered in Parakawai Valley in earlier years <clears throat> and he asked of any contact I'd had and I explained that I'd only seen the Caucasian guy crossing the stream with man Don identified as Dave, um, not Dave Turner, a different Dave, they look very different and that there was some other Caucasian guy there that Donald knew as well, but he wasn't, he must have gone with them at some stage, I didn't know him. Um, Dal explained that the woman's body hadn't been recovered, which made me wonder even more. Um, I said to him, is this why there have been attempts on our lives? Because people have seen us over there um, and he couldn't explain it and I'd mentioned that someone had tried to kill Donald um, should I be watching for anything what else is he looking for who gave him my information because I didn't know anything of it and he just said that my name had come up in conversations he wouldn't ID anyone um, and he showed me a photograph of a person uh, Maori, maybe some Hmong guy, um, and asked if, well, he actually said, well, this is Dave Tamahiri. But it didn't actually hold the resemblance to any photographs that have been in the paper or on the internet. I can say that now because I've done a little bit of searching. But when Dale was saying, is this the man, is this the man, I was saying, well, you've got to sort of change the eyes and you've got to change the nose and like the length of the face maybe, but he was like bigger and his hair was different. And that's basically where it was left. So Dale started writing down things and I was chronically ill. I was lucky that I could speak clearly. Um... I signed off the statement that he gave me without reading it. I'm just expecting him to be quite honest. Um, but later in life, I, I see that it's not recorded correctly. If you were paying attention, you would have noticed that in the original statement from January 1st, 1997, which I read aloud, it's missing the part about Christine seeing the Māori man driving the green car down Parakawai Quarry Road with the blonde woman who didn't return. And according to Christine, this admission wasn't by accident. So you sent me those statements and so the one that, um, that main one that you sent me with, uh, I think it's handwritten, um, so are you saying in that one there were things that you told Del Reed that he didn't write down and that you just didn't really because I think when I read through that one, you don't actually mention Heidi or 
in that original statement to Dell? Um, is that because you left that bit out or is that because he didn't include it? He didn't include it, yeah, because that was just one day. You know, Hamilton, Parakawai Valley, getting left there, the few people that were on the, on the uh, vehicle that drove by, and it was just an all-out strange two days. I reached out to former detective Del Reed, asking to meet to discuss the case and important developments. He replied with one line, I won't be discussing this matter, exclamation mark. So we're only getting Christine's side of the story. But if true that Del Reed left out this crucial piece of evidence, the implications are significant. Because this one statement, that she saw the car go up Parakawai Quarry Road with the blonde woman, presumed to be Heidi, and return without, would confirm that it was not possible Heidi was ever present at Crosby's clearing, she was not killed there, and her remains would not be found there. Which of course would mean the case against David Tamahedi would completely fall apart. When Dell came and, and took you aside and wanted to chat to you, did you get the feeling, fuck, someone's put me in this thing and, and brought your name up? You know, like someone's gone to the police and, and said, hey, this shit went down out there. Yeah, Chrissy was out there as well. She'll know. Is that the kind of feeling that you got from his questions? Um, I was a little bit aggravated that he wouldn't tell me who had brought me into this dynamic of inquiry. And I was starting to feel a little bit more resentful towards Donald because he wasn't with me and he left me in a location and he honestly must have known something was going down somewhere. Um, I didn't I didn't have any understanding of what had happened. I didn't watch any TV to learn about the Swedes. I'd not met David Tumahiri or John Tumahiri in the past, but I do recall that Donald had taken me to Thames and he was behaving strangely before that Parakawai visit as well. Yeah. So Del Reed and his method of conveying the loss of lives, um, I guess it was better late than never. Um, he said that the body had been recovered, the man's body. He asked me about a watch. Yeah. Um, I didn't know anything. Um, he asked about David Turner, um, and he mentioned that the Canadian FBI were looking for him. Had I seen him? Um, and that's when I sort of recalled that David didn't do anything to me. I hopped in the green Tirana, we went to Auckland. Angela was with us, she was in the front. And he returned me. Dell didn't really disclose much more than the fact, the facts of what I learned when I did manage to get a copy of the statement, because the police refused to give me statements when I requested them in 99. And then when I did get them, I could see where there was, uh, there was overlapping of information um, taking it out of context, and there was some information that wasn't included. Um, so you're saying that that you believe that you told Dell in that 97 interview that you saw the blonde girl in the car in the green car? Oh yeah, I definitely would have. She's clear as a bell in my memory. 
I can I could probably draw her if I had to. Um, I could probably draw the guy as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's 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 interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and and if he's asking, it, it seems like someone. Do you think maybe Donald himself said something to the police at some point? Maybe. Do you think it might have been Donald? Do you think it might have been someone else? It could have been Donald, or it could have been Dave, or it could have been Angela. Mm. Um, it could have been. It could have been Sidwell. Yeah, because we we stopped there in that weekend at his place, and I'm sure it was on the way to Thames. Could have been Joni Turner. Yeah. And that's it. So why did Del Reed seek Christine out for this interview? It seems that someone had pointed him in the direction of Parakawai and the Batch on that Taikato property sometime just after Easter, 1989. Christine seems unsure in my interview with her, but the answer seems obvious. It was David and James's brother, Donald Turner. The same man that after leaving prison sought out Darren Old and told him that he believed David and James were responsible, and the same man that messaged a reporter telling the story of a body over the creek. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One year after her original statement with Del Reed, Christine again met with police. This time, at her request. I have a police job sheet from this meeting with Detective Senior Sergeant Raffin, taken on January 15th, 1998. And I'm going to highlight a couple key points. Hymona stated that she was troubled by the statement of blank to the police and wanted to try and get matters clarified. She also stated that she now believes the Māori man she saw at the batch with the blonde man to be David Tamahiri. A footnote has been added by police. Hymona appeared genuinely interested in trying to recall events, but the effects of long-term drug abuse have obviously affected her memory. By the time of this second interview, it appears that Christine has come to ID the Māori man she saw that day as David Tamahiri, and that whatever the statement was that this person made, who I believe to be Donald, she felt it needed clarification. I don't have Donald's statement. I've made a request under the Official Information Act of New Zealand, but it likely won't be fulfilled until after the upcoming appeal of David Tamahiri. So I don't have all the details of what he said. 
but in a stunning twist. Christine tells me that her and Donald had a Facebook Messenger conversation in 2015. And when she slides the phone across and I read the messages, my jaw hit the floor. I've compiled a number of the messages that are relevant to this case, and here they will be read by an actor. I don't have zip to do with Dave or James since I grew up and realised beating women and all others unlucky enough to be around us. As far as Dave goes, they're both guilty. They were together at the batch when you and I stopped over on our way to Thames, where I got caught in that van. Well, they found the guy's body across the stream from the batch. Fuck them all. World's better off when they die. To change myself, I need to cut ties. To stop the cycle. I made peace with Dad before he died, but the others can eat shit. Too negative, mate. I'm still carrying guilt for how I treated you during those years too, mate. I was a fucking animal and you deserve better. Stay strong. As for CIB, they interviewed me after finding the Swede's body on Father's Farm at Wonga. I never sent them to you, but I had said me and you had stayed at the batch when Dave and company, including Tamahiri, were there, just before we shot over to Joan's bus in Thames. In case you ain't worked it out, they were in the middle of doing the Swedes, or had just done them, when we passed through. The white car they were using was the Swedes' rental. Certainly didn't mean you no drama, but I wasn't having that on my conscience. The pigs know they fucked up and were trying to tidy it up. Look, mate, that the cops talked to you is a bummer, but that was 20 years ago. Grow the fuck up. I only ever contacted you to say sorry for being such a piece of shit to you, not to drag you into anything. Sounds like contact was ill-advised judging by your meltdown, so I'll just slip quietly back into the dark and leave you to it. In these messages, and others sent to Christine, Donald seems to be trying to atone for his past mistakes. There seems to be no love loss between him and David and James, but more importantly, he tells Christine that he was in fact interviewed by CIB after Urban's body was discovered, and it would appear that he told police, at the very least, that David and James were on that Taikato farm with Heidi and Urban. And again, like Christine, Donald has included David Tamahedi in this picture. He also implies that Christine and himself had been on the property either during or shortly after Heidi and Urban's murders. This would corroborate Darren Old's sighting of the couple with the three brothers. Interestingly, he mentions they were driving Heidi and Urban's white Subaru station wagon. So it would seem to corroborate that the white station wagon Christine saw the men leave in from the batch was in fact Heidi and Urban's. Finally, and importantly, his last comment. The pigs know they fucked up, and they were trying to clean up. Donald appears to be implying here that CIB were aware that there were issues with the truth of this case, and the one used to convict David Tamahedi, and that they were effectively tying up loose ends. Let's go over this timeline of events. Darren and Jamie discover Urban's body in October of 1991. And according to Darren, police interviewed them at length. And Darren attempted to tell CIB that he had seen Heidi and Urban alive with the Turner brothers on the Taikato property two years earlier 
only 2.8 kilometers from where the body was found. Donald Turner is imprisoned for an unrelated matter, and on his release, sometime around 1997, he seeks out Darren Old and tells him that his brothers David and James were responsible for the murders. I don't know the exact time frame, but it appears that at this same time, Donald makes a statement to police, again implicating his brothers. Following this statement, CIB located and interviewed Christine Hymona in January of 1997 about what took place at the Batch after Easter in April of 1989. Christine has told me that she told Del Reed about seeing the blonde woman in the car, but that this was not included in the official statement. In January of 1998, Christine approached police over concerns regarding Donald Turner's statement and this time tells police the Māori man she saw was in fact David Tamahiri. It's important to also remember that while these dramatic statements were being made to police behind closed doors, publicly, David Tamahiri's case was big news. In May of 1992, after the discovery of Urban's body, Tamahiri was denied his appeal because there was Nothing substantive in defence claims that the skeleton revealed new evidence. In 1994, Tamahiri was denied leave to apply to the highest court, the Privy Council. And in July of 1996, around the same time Donald Turner seems to have made this statement to police, and only six months before police would speak to Christine Hymona, secret witness C, Roberto Harris, would go live on TV with veteran broadcaster Paul Holmes and admit to lying at Tamahiri's trial and stated, they definitely have an innocent man locked up. I could be wrong, but I'm going to take a wild guess and say that I doubt Tamahiri's legal team ever had full disclosure about these dramatic new statements which pointed to a scenario nothing like the one used to convict Tamahiri. The note added by police to Christine's second statement in 1998 that she appeared to be struggling to remember events accurately due to drug use is either genuine, remember Christine was a known user, or has been added as a safety net. This one note would effectively discredit anything Christine had said in court, rendering it virtually useless. So who was Donald Turner, and what was their drug use during this time? Let's remember, we're only hearing Christine's side of this story, and she's likely to look back on her own use more favourably. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Donald, um, how long you guys were together, what he was like as a man and a, and a partner, and you know, and how, how all that sort of worked. Okay, so... I went to Whangamata initially with two people, um, a Mark and a Steve, and we had a family uh, home on Linton Crescent. It was the Wallace residence. So Donald actually knew the flatmates. I'd never met him before. I was waiting to join the Air Force um, in the next call in the approaching year. Um, so he bounded around. Um, 
I think the flatmates were into smoking a bit of pot and he was into trying to cut a deal with them, I suppose. I was a wine drinker back then. Um, eventually he'd sort of stop in more frequently. He was coming over from Hamilton. Uh, eventually he, I don't know, came over to ask me out. And after that 21st session in Thames, he dropped a motorcycle, which is when we were both injured. And I had to get another residence down in Campbell Street. So he came with me and one of my flatmates from Linton Crescent came with me as well. Um, and then Donald started introducing his other friends who were like boot boys. Um, What's a boot boy? Um, they like their long Doc Martens and they'd oh, wear right. short hair. Nazi symbols and stuff like that. Um, Maybe not quite that much. Punk rockers kind of thing, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Boot boys, skinhead, punk rockers. Um, and that was fine. They were, they were pretty harmless. They'd go around on their motorcycles and, and do whatever they'd, they'd done. Um, I didn't see them very often. Um, so that's when Donald started to reside with us. Both of us injured after coming off this bike. Um, and then I think I was sort of here and there with him because he'd still travel off into other cities to do tattoo work. Sometimes he'd take me, sometimes he wouldn't. Um, I got to meet his brother Dave and his partner at the time was Linda um, and James and his ex-partner was uh, Savvy and his, his stepsister partner is Jodie Dando and she absolutely despised me and I like Savvy and Savvy despised her as well so it was an awkward relationship from the get-go um, I met his brother Willie and I met Estelle and um, Joni yeah he'd be fine if he was doing his own thing which was smoking a bit of pot and doing some poppies. Um, when you say do poppies, talking heroin, homemade heroin. Homemade. Yeah. Homemade. Or um, sometimes people would say they're on the morphine and he'd do tattoo work for something like that. I don't know what was ever wrong with him for him to need it or whether it's just a junkie's way of life. Um, Would you describe Donald as a junkie, like a stereotypical junkie? Yeah, I think I think that he had an addiction, um, and I I understood that the violence that he felt towards me was something external of the fact that I didn't really need to be involved with the scene. I didn't really have that punk rocker go hug girl attitude. Uh, so we were very different. One thing we need to cover is drug use around that time. Um, Donald is, was known to be a dealer and a, wee, a bit of a wheeler dealer and a user. So tell me about his you know, day-to-day drug use. Would he be, you know, when all this went down, you know, say when you guys get to the batch, would he have already, would he have been high at that point or, you know? He didn't, he didn't use anything in front of me. He, doesn't, he didn't even smoke a, a joint. On the way over there, uh, I don't know what he done with the rest of the day. Uh, but like, even when he come back in the evening, he was still uncomfortable. 
One, because Dave was in the bunk bed a few feet away from us. Um, he just wasn't, he just wasn't uh, his normal self. But, you know, if he was wired, if he didn't have any drugs, that would certainly make him uncomfortable. Okay, so, yeah. so he would need to have either a hit of some, some type of injection drug um, or a lot of pot, which he'd bong or smoke. Um, or he'd be trying to get a hold of um, any downers, like um, Valiums, yeah. to stop the cramps. Yeah. Yeah. And yourself that day, so you've told me in the past that you, you did use occasionally, but you weren't, you know, addicted. So that day in particular is interesting to me. I mean, when you were down the batch, tell me about what drug use you had that day. None. No. None, no. Um, I was I was residing in, in Hamilton um, and I was with my parents and I was looking at work at the university and I eventually landed myself a research job with the parapsychology unit. Yeah. Okay. Battling the psychiatrists and religions and psychology. So that day though, uh, when you saw the green car and you saw the blonde girl and all of that day, you weren't using that day. You were just... Yeah, okay. That's just good for me for recall and, you know, like... I'm not a, I'm not a um, pot smoker. Yeah. Um, and as it turned out, I'd been infected with hepatitis C when I was probably playing rep sports. So being introduced to um, morphine um, and poppies actually helped to relax me because later on in life, well, even today, I'm still on opiates. Yeah. but they're prescribed to me now. Yeah. Um, I didn't know anything about drugs. Um, I didn't know that you know, people weren't allowed to inject their own drugs because I, I was raised in a different type of family scene. <laughs> my father was a Māori Anglican minister and oh, my mother God. was like working in schools and I was like rep sports and fucking, yeah, just in a different, different space to those who raised up, brought up in the Coromandel. So, yeah, that's when Dell hit me. Oh, he actually said on a statement that he believed um, I could be dying or something like that. And they were going to take out my liver if I didn't get uh, a good response. But no drug use that day, no drug use that weekend. Um, when you met, um, I suppose I'm thinking that whole family dynamic, so Dave and James, Willie, all those guys, um, it's, it's known now that, you know, Dave did end up in a bit of a life of crime. Like, what was your take on it at that time when you met these guys? Like, what did you see? Did you ever see any sort of... Violence. Violence or anything like that? Just normal sort of stuff? Or I didn't see the violence. Um, I heard a few um, warnings go down to silly young, young people, like, coming up into their 20s who would try to act like they were big and tough and James had to say he'll give him a backhand if he keeps up the way he's going um, not to bring his, his shit in here because these guys would try to burglarise things um, and I'd heard that Dave had slapped around his partners in the past I believe that you know the father was the fence for any stolen goods um, I don't know what else happened up there but the violence was very real. If there was going to be an evening at a pub, people would generally let them have run of the place. They wouldn't try to 
remove them if they were smoking pot outside or in the car park, you know, or um, give them the hurry up if the bar was closing. Yeah, it's just not worth the hassle. Like of yeah, because the savages out there were big whanau, and James had a child with one of the savage women, and savage people worked on the bar, so there was also that type of um, interrelationship going on. Uh, and when Father, Don Turner Sr. was at the pub, there would be Glenis Taikato there, and possibly Pat, and it was a, they're quite big whanau, so I wouldn't see a lot of out-towners, out-of-towners, but if some young white guy would roll in there pissed as a maggot and like tried to act like he was smart around their woman, they could most likely get smacked over in the bathroom by the partner of the woman. Um, they, they wouldn't have had any apprehension of doing anything like that. Yeah. And I've heard of um, like James stomping in someone's face in the latrine for trying to get savvy, Lena Savage stoned on something or trying to slip her some drugs and she wasn't into it. Yeah. So he is said to have bashed her. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, they took the vehicles from my flatmates. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know if they ever paid for it with like drugs or whatever. But as soon as they saw Steve with his vehicle, whatever it was, James took ownership of it. And when they came to Hamilton and saw Bromwyn Exel's Green Tirana and liked the sound of it, Dave Turner took possession of it. Um, And with the motorcycle as well, when Don wanted to use his mate's motorcycle in Thames, um, he just took it. They had a habit of just, they saw a vehicle that's like, we'll have that. Yeah, I guess so. Because the the way Don presents it is, oh, he's my mate. He's my mate. He'll understand I've got it. I had another ride. I'll take it, you know, but he's fucking around getting pissed in stone. I'm just going to take it. I've got to go. And then, you know, they'd have a little bit of an argument later on and things would get sorted out. They kind of seem like, you know, they, it's... They make their own rules up a bit, that family. Yes. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite um, that Wong Mata Coromandel area, it was the Wild West back in those days. Well, it almost seems lawless. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I don't know how people survive in such small communities. It was like you're either a fisherman or forestry. Otherwise, you're like... Grand <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I suppose. So the, there was like a hotel, a pub, and very few shops. And supermarkets, you know, um, and wholesalers. And that was it. And I would only gone over there, like, I think it must have been after Christmas, for a few weeks' holiday. And I stayed in that area for about two years, maybe two and a half years. But, I mean, how confident are you today sitting here that that was was Heidi in that car and you saw David Tamahiri and whatever happened to to Heidi Nevada happened out there? I'm... um, 80% 80% confident. Um, I'd not spoken to the guy. I didn't, I'd never heard of Heidi. Um, I didn't recognise her from any of the Turners. I knew that the boys liked blondes. Um, I knew they wouldn't want a partner of hers around if they had plans for her alone. Um, it wouldn't have been a mutually beneficial situation for a guy to be in. Um, he would have been beaten up because they, if they want the girl, they'll get the girl. Um, I can look at photographs now 
of like um, Dave, in my mind, I can still see the photograph of him in the Thames area going into court and his companion behind him. Yeah, the, the, the Caucasian guy. The Caucasian guy. They are one and the two, uh, one and the same person, this guy, Dave. Especially seeing that this other chap followed him to the courts. Yeah, the hard thing for me is, yeah, there's, there's a fog around things. Um, you know, the green car, that's, you know, that, trying to fit that. I, I don't have, you're the only one that saw that. Um, but yeah, I think there's just a bit of a fog around this whole this whole thing and what really happened. And, and I'm not sure if we ever get to the bottom of it. But for me, yeah, I just thought, right, well, if you can place Heidi out there and, and all the shady movements that were going on with Donald and, and everyone out there that that day or that two days, mm. you know, and I mean, what, what, what other situation could have happened? Those two guys that came across the creek could have been down there preparing a site for her because she was taken out there some hours later. Only required one person, unless the guy was on the motorcycle that was heard um, out in the hills across the other side of the stream. If he'd stopped the bike at the base of the, of the forestry and walked in, this is what I was trying to figure out. He, was, he was looked like he was fit enough to get there reasonably quickly and this guy's gone down to maybe the fjord, stashed his car up the hills and no one sees it, pulled her out and then where's the meeting point? For them to be coming across the stream a few minutes down in a car, a few minutes back up the road, there's an area, right? Mm. Maybe they were preparing it. And this is where we drift from memory into speculation. There is no doubt that a huge fog has descended over the Parakawai Valley and the events that took place in April of 1989. Like Darren Old, Christine can only tell me the events that she witnessed. She also added, a motorbike she heard move across the paddock over the creek sometime shortly after the green car drove past. She told me the bike stopped, but she never saw who was on it or heard anything more. Is the bike connected to the man driving the green car with the blonde? We also have to be aware of the fact that Christine's statements and recollection of events have changed over time. Her sighting of the blonde woman and the man driving the green car wasn't in her original statement. Although Christine is adamant that she told Del Reed and it was not included. She also added the positive ID of David Tamahiri a year after the original statement, after coming forward to police saying she was concerned about Donald Turner's statement and that she wanted to clarify things. We know Christine was there that weekend. Donald places her there, and she herself says she was there. But are we getting the full story? Is it possible that in the year between her first statement and second, that someone had coerced her into saying it was Tamahiri? We don't know what Donald Turner told police, but we have a fair idea that he was directly implicating his brothers in Heidi and Urban's murders. 
Was Christine attempting to cloud the whole situation? Or was she genuinely now able to say, Yeah, that was Tamahedi I saw. Remember, she says she knew little to nothing about the Swede case prior to being brought in for the 97 interview, and she didn't know who Tamahedi was. So a delayed ID could make sense. Ultimately, each witness holds their own piece of the puzzle. And each witness has tried to use their piece to fill in the rest of the story. And this can be dangerous. But for the first time ever, I'm bringing these pieces together. And hopefully, removing the speculation. But if you thought this was the end, you're mistaken. Because the biggest revelations are yet to come. In a recent development that has only come to light in the hours before I'm writing this episode, a new witness has come forward to speak. Someone who was there that day. Someone that you'll never believe I'm speaking to. A person that has told me that he has the truth. All the details. Never told to police. The most explosive witness in New Zealand criminal history. And he's going to speak to me. And me alone. But he'll only meet me in person. As of this moment, the story is still writing itself. And even I don't know the outcome. All of this and more in the final feature-length episode of Season 3 of Guilt. We are right now on a peninsula called the Coromandel, situated a bit south of Auckland. We have only 14 days left in New Zealand. Here in Coromandel are a lot of beautiful beaches, and the weather is really nice. There's a lot of laying around on the beach. Often we are on our own, so there's no crowd. Last night we slept in a camp for a change. Most of the time we're just staying out in the open, in the countryside. The campground has its own thermal pools, and it was rather nice to sink into the pool at nine in the evening with all the stars and the heavens above us. I wonder if the same songs have been popular at home as here. A couple of songs have been Chicago, Look Away, Poison, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, Chris de Berg, Missing You, and The Moody Blues, I Know You're Out There Somewhere. Until we meet again, Urban and Heidi. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. And are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons must be presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode, Joachim Berg as Urban and Jacob Masters as Donald Turner. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, 
and I highly recommend you join the discussion with thousands of other guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding, and you can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast+. Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.